On September 1st, 1966, Ralph Bayer sat down and wrote a four-page document outlining an idea that he had. At the top read, Background Material Conceptual TV Gaming Display. These four pages lay the groundwork for almost the entire video game industry, and from them derive the ideas by which video games get their name. Today we're going to take a look at these four pages and the man who wrote them, Ralph Bayer, as we talk about his creation of the world's first commercial video game console, the Magnavox Odyssey. So stick around and join us as we go back to the beginning on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 105th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you a story about one game, console, or otherwise relevant to the current week in gaming history, and we talk about it. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are going back all the way to the beginning, the father of video games, the patent that all video games are derived from, the first commercial video game console, the Magnavox Odyssey. We're going to take a look at everything from the beginning. The Odyssey was released in 1972, and here we go. I'm David Casson, and joining me as always, but not today... Yeah, I'm flying solo today. Unfortunately, a widespread storm and power outage has knocked my usual co-host out for the day. So today we're flying solo. But that's cool because we all know if you're a long-time listener that I love to hear myself talk anyway. So no problem at all. So you just get me. Uh, Yeah, so let's jump right into the beginning of video games. So, you know... One of the things I really enjoy when I look at this is is history, and it's really amazing to think about history as it is. But the story of Ralph Bayer is realistically also a story of what could never have been. He is the inventor of video games as we know him, but he had quite a life before he got to that point. So Ralph Bayer was born in 1922 to Jewish parents in the Weimar Republic, which is southwest Germany. And the 30s were not a great time for people of Jewish ethnicity in Germany. In 1933, Bayer was expelled from his school simply from being simply for being Jewish. This was a real thing for for you know Jewish Jewish citizens back then. And as the 1930s progressed, it really became obvious to Bayer's parents that Germany was in fact becoming a dangerous place for those those of Jewish ethnicity. So in 1938, about two months before the infamous Kristallnacht attack on Jewish property, the Bayers fled Germany. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Kristallnacht is, it was basically a night in which non-Jewish people rioted against Jewish people, destroying their homes, destroying businesses. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's sad. Look it up. So the Bears fled Germany just before that, though. They knew that, you know, the feelings were in the air that it was coming. They first ended up in Holland and then uh, emigrated to the United States. So once in America, Ralph Bayer gained interest in the budding fields of electronics he graduated as a radio service technician from the National Radio Institute in 1940. And for the following three years, he ran a store in New York in which he serviced and repaired radios. And later on, also included this included PA systems and then eventually televisions as well. So in 1943, Bayer was drafted by the United States Army. And with his skill sets, he was uh, adopted into intelligence, army intelligence, where initially he helped write some of the training documents that were given to allied troops in preparation for D-Day. 
Afterwards, he was assigned to Eisenhower's quarters. He spent some time there, and then he was moved to be stationed at in France itself. In May of 44, Bayer was separated from his unit after a paperwork mess up, and he was instead assigned to a unit of replacement GIs. Um, now, replacement GIs were men that were being trained often not as much training as the initial GIs got. Uh, they were they were literally replacements as as World War II. This would, of course, be World War II. As World War II was going on, people were people were dying left and right. Replacement GIs, and specifically these were replacement GIs that were being, being prepped to replace troops for the invasion of Normandy. So it's May of 1944, and this intelligence officer um, due to a paperwork mess up is staring the possibility of being shipped to Normandy in the face. And I mean, let's be honest, tons of people ended up going to Normandy and never coming back. And so at that point there was a real possibility that Bayer would be one of them. And we may never, we may not be here where we are today you know, there's always the argument that someone else would invent video games or this or that, but it's a real what if. I mean, you know, if Bayer had gone to Normandy, which he ended up not going to Normandy, uh, what would have happened? Instead, though, while he was training as a replacement GI, he contacted pneumonia and he was placed into a military hospital. Uh, he spent some weeks in this hospital and while he was healing, his old intelligence unit found him. And they sorted the paperwork mishap out, and he was able to enjoy uh, to rejoin his intelligence unit. You would think at this point that Bayer was an expert on the electronic side of things, on PAs and TVs, and more specifically radios. I mean, the man spent, you know, graduated from the National Radio Institute as a radio service technician, so you know it would be really easy to 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 follow that hey here's a military expert on radios but the truth of the matter is that bayer was actually an expert on small arms that's apparently where he laid out a lot of research and one fun fact about ralph bayer is that he honestly managed to bring home 18 tons of various weaponry from both the axis and the allied side home to the u.s with him and with the Army's blessing after the war, he later ran a number of exhibits with all the weapons that he brought back. So go figure. In 1949, he graduated from the American Television Institute of Technology with a Bachelor's of Science in Television Engineering. This, he was honestly one of the first people in the world to ever have that degree. He graduated with the first group of people in the world who graduated with a television engineering degree. So he was a, a pioneer in television engineering. In 1949, later after graduating from college, he went to work as a chief engineer for a small electromedical equipment firm called Wappler Incorporated. Uh, as part of Wappler, he built surgical cutting machines, epilators, which are those um, things that take hair off, uh, electronic things that take hair off. And um, low pulse muscle toning equipment. I think of that little shake belt, uh, and the you know because back then they didn't really know that stuff, so probably had that little shake belt that uh, that people thought were actual muscle toning equipment. So in 1951, he goes to work as a senior engineer for Laurel Electronics, and Laurel was a contractor of IBM. And as part of Laurel, he designed power line carrier signaling equipment. And as part of other uh, other projects, he was assigned to at Laurel. At one point, he was assigned to build a television set. And while designing this TV set, an idea came to mind that he wanted to build something into a TV set that the owner could control in addition to its normal function of receiving signals from a remote television set. And this was the earliest seed of his idea that would eventually blossom into video games. 
In the early 1950s, he was chief engineer for a company called Transiton Incorporated. And then in 1956, he joined defense contractor Sanders Associates. Sanders is now part of BAE Systems, which is a huge military defense contractor. I think it's Europe's largest military defense contractor, but they do a lot of work for the U.S. military, too. Because if you're a military contractor, who doesn't do work for the United States military? But as part of Sanders, his primary responsibility was he oversaw about 500 engineers that were developing electronic systems for military applications. Go figure. Then again in 1966, August specifically of 1966, he was waiting for the bus one day and his television idea popped back into his head and it stuck with him. He slept on it, woke up the next morning, September 1st, 1966, and on paper, he hand-wrote a four-page proposal on which our entire hobby is based. Now, what's really cool is you can go to Ralph Bayer's website, literally ralphbayer.com, and there are scanned copies of these four pages and typewritten if you can't read his handwriting, but you can literally go and you can see the document that turned into our entire industry. It's dated September 1st, 1966. And at the very top, it reads Back background material, conceptual TV gaming display. And it goes on to read that the purpose of the invention is to provide a large variety of low cost data entry devices, which can be used by an operator to communicate with a monochrome or colored TV set of standard commercial modified type. So that's a really fancy way of he wanted to basically create these boxes that could interact with a TV with a with a with a TV. So um, he noted that he wanted to design what he called games for it. They were classes of games. Among the suggested classes of ga- classes of games, they include action games in which the skill of an operator plays a part. One suggestion was steering a wheel to control random drift of a color and then seeing which participants can manage to to match the color the longest. They suggested board skill games. Examples for that were given checkers, chess, and dominoes. Another class were artistic games. Uh, Artistic games were suggested to be games in which the player manipulates controls to produce artistic designs. Sometimes they would have to do so working against a timer. So the concept of timed time attacks was right in the beginning. There were a suggestion for instructional games. These were games that were designed to teach the basics of things like geometry, arithmetic, basically what we call educational games. Another class were board chance games. These were described to be games like roulette or potentially dice games. They gave card games their own class. Kind of speaks for itself, right? We all like card games. And the last class of games suggested were sport games. And as a suggestion for a sport game, they suggested auto racing. Now, in the rest of the four pages, he lays out the technical ways in which he believes he can accomplish this goal. So if you are interested in reading the technical know-how, like I said, you can go literally on his website. It's his name, RalphBayer.com, and you can read this document yourself. Now, because a game, a box that could interact with the TV to play games had little to nothing to do with a military application, at first, Ralph Bayer could not really ask his company to contribute to a project like this. So he picks an empty room and assigns one of his technicians, a man named Bob Trembley, to start designing this as opposed to actually, you know, it's the old saying, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? So he puts a, puts a random technician in an empty room. Here's my idea. Let's go. By December of 1966, they had completed their first prototype. They christened it uh, TV game number one and TV game number one could display and move a single vertical line on the television screen. That's where this all started. So with a prototype, a working prototype, in fact, in front of them, 
Bayer decided to bring this to his director of research, uh, along with his four page document and with actually physically something in front of them, they hesitantly agreed to fund the project for what was at the time, $2,000 in labor and about $500 in materials. So for the next few months, uh, with the boss's hesitant blessing and a budget, they worked on further prototypes. Uh, with this added budget in February of 1967, uh, Bayer was able to bring another technician named Bill Harrison into the project. And while Harrison worked on furthering these prototypes, Bayer was able to work with yet another engineer called William Rush to brainstorm ideas for the console. Now, these this brainstorming session, these were the early games that they suggested. One suggestion was a two-player game where players repeatedly pressed a button to compete against one another in filling or emptying a bucket of water. Now, this was one of the games that was included on their second prototype box, TV game number two, which was released in June of 67. They also had a game in which dots chase one another, and they created a light gun shooter with a plastic rifle. So as part of this process, Ralph Bayer actually invented the light gun shooter as well. So he brings this prototype, these later prototypes, back to the director of research. And director of research is impressed with how things are going. So he agrees to increase funding. But part of that process, he also recommended that Bayer demonstrate the project to senior management. So he takes it to the board. And honestly, the board was less than enthusiastic. There were maybe a couple of members there who uh, who were geeked, but the majority of them were not. And so it took a little bit of persuasion. The members that were on board, they pushed and they were collectively able to recommend the CEO to push forward. And so at this point, the project was authorized by senior management up, you know, all the way through the board. And the intent was to create a project with the intent to sell or license the console as a commercial product. Because Sanders Associates was a, 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 you know, a defense contractor. They, they were not about to, to create a little video game console and get it out there. They just wanted to create the technology and sell it to the highest bidder. I mean, that's what a lot of defense contractors do, to be honest with you. So at this point, the challenge has changed, right? You know, in he... When Bayer first wrote the first proposal, he wanted to make the system. He had originally settled on, hey, I think I can do this and I want to keep the cost around $25. But now realizing that they would have to turn this into a commercial project, they realized that in order to meet the $25 manufacturing goal, that they would have to leave a lot out to the point where they felt that the console wasn't going to be very enjoyable. So at this point, he he also kind of got the nagging feeling that he wasn't very good at making enjoyable games and felt that William Rush did a much better job, so William Rush was officially added to the team. Now, the rest of the team was not thrilled by this because Rush was had a reputation for being kind of a prickly guy, um, but Rush proved his worth rather quickly, because he was able to design a way for this team to display on their screen a third spot controlled by the console that was on the screen. Now, this was aside from they had already found a way to create two other spots on the screen that the controllers controlled. And if you're trying to picture this, this is essentially what the creation of, you know it as Pong, but it was called the ping pong game at the time. Rush was the one who was able to figure out a way to design the console to display basically the ball. It was a third console controlled square and you had already had the controller side squares on the side. So go William Rush. By November, the team was already onto their fourth prototype machine. They had a ping pong game. They had a chasing game. They had a light gun game. They had three types of controllers. There were joysticks for the chase game. There was a rifle for the light gun game. And they had a controller with three dials on it that they used for ping pong. If you're curious what the three dials were, 
they were up and down, left and right, and then English, which is what the term we use for putting spin when you hit a ball. So at this point, it was determined that realistically with their prototype that there was enough of a project there, there was something to sell, something to market, and so they started to shop it around. And at first, they approached the cable TV industry, and the prototype attracted the attention of the Teleprompter Corporation. Yes, this is the corporation that invented, well, the teleprompter. It was once a corporation name, and like so many other things, you know, um, iPods, for instance, and Apple, and those were really bad examples. What's a good example? What's a good example of a name brand that, uh, Segway? In any case, it was once the name of the company. Now we know devices as teleprompters, uh, and, and the story, um, Little fun fact about the Teleprompter Corporation. I don't know. I mean, we know them as the Teleprompter, but they were a cable TV corporation. And in 1970, they merged with another cable company called the H&B American Corporation. And for a moment into the 70s, they were actually the nation's largest cable company. If you're curious where they are nowadays, they've been sold and sold and sold. And it should come as no surprise that like everyone else, they're part of Comcast nowadays. But in the late 60s, they were the Teleprompter Corporation, giant cable company. And towards the end of the 60s, there was an economic downturn. Now, this caused Teleprompter as a company to have cash flow, cash flow problems. And they had to back out of any deal to acquire our market, a video game console. Now, the same downturn caused Sanders Associates, the company that Bayer worked for, to have an issue. And this caused the project to have to pretty much be put on hold while the company underwent large-scale layoffs. The project was luckily picked up back towards the end of 69. Unfortunately, probably due to layoffs, William Rush was no longer part of the team, and the team was able to design two more prototypes. The one we know of today... The one that is in the Smithsonian, literally, it's in the Smithsonian Museum uh, as the first video game console is the seventh prototype. We know it as the brown box. And it's got its name because they covered it with that really typical 70s wood grain veneer that can be found everywhere. That's what they used on the casing of the box. So it got the nickname the brown box. So the brown box was, I mean, pretty much a complete project, right? So when the co cable companies built out, now they have a prototype and they really don't know what to do from this point. So the lawyers suggested at Sanders had suggested like, hey, let's start filing patents on everything. So they take these original documents and what they've worked on to this point, they start filing patents with the patent office and Somewhere in this process, a Sanders lawyer suggested reaching out to television manufacturers instead. Now, several companies expressed enthusiasm over this project, but really only RCA wanted to purchase the device. But unfortunately, RCA and Sanders could not come to any agreement on licensing the console out. Soon after this, an RCA executive named Bill Enders left RCA and he went over to Magnavox and... As an executive at Magnavox, he convinced Magnavox to go ahead and look at the console again. Again, it was a fight, but in the end, uh, Enders won. And in January of 1971, the two companies finally signed an agreement that Magnavox was going to produce and, um, and license the brown box as the intent of, of, of a, a, you know, making a, a, an entertainment device. I'm not even going to say video game console. They, they didn't even have the term video games yet. So the project was turned over to a team at Magnavox. This team was led by George Kent. And they redesigned the exterior from the brown box into the console that we know today. Um, Bayer and Harrison, two of the Sanders um, engineers, consulted on the project. And some changes were made to the console itself. One big one was that color TVs were still seen as a luxury, so the ability to show color was removed. They 
made it so instead of three controllers, it only had one, which was the three dial controller. And they also changed it so the system of selecting games, um, it was changed. Originally, it's a dial, and they changed it to be separate game cards that modified the console circuitry when plugged into the console. So let's talk about that for a moment. You see, all the all the internal circuitry, if you're a nerd about this stuff, was designed with discrete components rather than integrated circuits. Um, integrated circuits were really just becoming common in the 1970s. So instead of what we have nowadays, which are literally like chips that contain all the components in one, and I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because we have microchips now and, and, and so on and so forth, but integrated circuits have everything in one, this literally was a giant board that had capacitor for this and transistor for this and capacitor for this and transistor for this. And it laid out every single one of those components separately. And that's quite, it's a quite awesome piece of engineering. If you think about it way different from, I mean, by the time we got into the next generation of games, that wasn't even the way we did it anymore. So now, so this team works on the console itself. There's another team that go to work designing the games for the system. They are the games that came out with the Magnavox are largely based on the original designs by Bayer, Harrison, and Rush, but they are not, in fact, the games that were designed by Bayer, Harrison, and Rush. Then it comes time that we have to market and name the system, right? So at first, they're thinking about naming the system the Magnavox Skillavision. Kind of has a fancy ring to it. Um, but eventually they settle on the Magnavox Odyssey. I honestly don't know where the name came from. It just really goes from one to the other. The light rifle game that Ralph Bayer designed was turned into a separate add-on. As you can see, downloadable content was a thing even here at the beginning. We were always, always fated to get it, ladies and gentlemen. Always had add-ons from the very first console ever created. And after all these designs, all this stuff between Magnavox and Sanders, they finally released the new console. It was the Magnavox Odyssey. It was announced with a launch date of September of 1972 and a price tag of $99.99. Now, I want to talk about the console, of course. How can we not talk about the console? But I I really want to go back to the point where I said video games weren't a thing yet because no one had started to use the term video games. It it didn't exist when the Odyssey was released. So if you go back to look at the early marketing of the Magnavox Odyssey, it has names like the new electronic game of the future, or at one point it was referred to the closed circuit electronic playground, which is honestly kind of cool in context. But um, it wasn't for another year or two more years if i'm not mistaken that anyone started to use the term video games so i mean this even predates the term so we have a console right 99 dollars and 99 cents so what does it have well for starters uh the console itself is really only capable of displaying a bunch of primitive squares so in order to make the experience more exciting and to give you more to do. It comes with plastic overlays. These are clear pieces of plastic with things written on them, like see-through things written on them that you would put on your screen. So like if you played a game called baseball, you could put an overlay on your screen that was typically like a baseball field because they couldn't display the baseball field. All they can display was the square and you were supposed to imagine that the square was players and the plastic overlay on your television screen was was your field. Um, football was the same way. There was one that was a football field that was, you know, just squares running across the screen. But the football field was how you were supposed to imagine it. And not only that, this system was so primitive, there was no scorekeeping. So if you wanted to play like football or baseball, even the ping pong game didn't keep score. You had to keep score yourself on all of these games. Um, but yeah, so there were plastic overlays. There were, there was paper money that was included, uh, for like 
gambling games because roulette was a game that would eventually come out. I said that the class of games were card games, so it also came with playing cards. And back to the gambling, it also came with poker chips. So a lot of interesting things came in the original Magnavox Odyssey box. Now here in the United States, there were a dozen games that were included with the console. These were Table Tennis, which is ping pong, Ski, Simon Says, uh, Normal Tennis, um, Analogic, which was a math game, Hockey, Football, um, Football specifically, you would use a combination of the overlay along with dice and a set of cards to simulate a game of football. There was a cat and mouse game. There was a haunted house game. There was a submarine target shooting game. You could play roulette. And there was also a game called States, which was a trivia game about the States. If you're curious how to play a trivia game, which is squares playing cards, that's how you would have cards that would have the trivia on them. The console was very short lived and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but while it was available, between the U.S. and the international versions, there were 28 different games available. They were spread out between 11 different game cards. Now, the rifle game that we talked about was one of them. It included four games. They were the Prehistoric Safari. They were Dogfight. They were Shootout and Shooting Gallery. Kind of all speak for themselves. You could shoot dinosaurs. Uh, you can shoot in a plane, or you can just have a shooting quack quack shootout. There was another racing game called Precepts. This game was sent to people who sent Magnavox back a survey card. And some of the others included a basketball game, a volleyball game. There was soccer. There was a handball game. There was a baseball game that was later later included. Um, there was also a racing game with an overlay of a zoo called Fun Zoo. There was another racing game called Wipeout. Um, one of the last games released for the system was a game called Interplanetary Voyage. That was a game in which you would guide a dot from planet to planet to complete missions. The missions were given by cards, that, playing cards that you know came with the game. So we have a console released in 1972, right? Um, in 1972, Magnavox sold 69,000 units. They sold 89,000 units in 1973. They sold 129,000 units in 1974, and they sold 80,000 units in 1975. It was at this point, despite continued demand for the console, that Magnavox discontinued production of the Odyssey in fall of 1975. You see, rising inflation had raised the manufacturing cost of the console from... $37 to uh, $47, which was making it not very profitable in hindsight for Magnavox. Um, and so Magnavox couldn't, in that market, Magnavox also couldn't justify raising the retail price of the console. $99, that's called $100, let's call it what it is. $100 was the amount that they kind of determined that the market would handle at that point, which is kind of funny, actually. I'll tell you why in a second. Um, because the cost of making it was going up, they decided that they wanted to make a cheaper alternative. And so it was in May of 1974, it signed a contract with Texas Instruments, you know, the calculator from Hell Company. And TI was going to help them design a system that would replace the discrete circuitry of the Odyssey with integrated circuits, which was cheaper, easier, so on and so forth. And together they were going to design a whole console around them. And the result of this partnership was several consoles in the Magnavox Odyssey family that could only play games that were built into the system. So for example, the Odyssey 100 was only capable of playing ping pong and hockey the two the the two ping pong and hockey that were on the original odyssey and this console was you know retailed for 
And now back to the reason why it was hilarious that they felt they couldn't raise the price of the original Magnavox Odyssey. Another example is the Odyssey 200. It included the handball game on top of all the others, um, along with they managed to get away to add rudimentary scoring on the screen. And the Odyssey 200 retailed for $109.95. So they found a way to get the market to, you know, put up with things costing over $100. But it had to be had to be perceived as an upgrade to it. Um, now, if you're wondering, are you thinking that it's weird that the console was only capable of playing video games um, that were built into it? That's honestly the way that the majority of the first generation of video game consoles were created. Um, The first generation of video game consoles had hundreds, and that's not even an exaggeration. There were literally hundreds of consoles in the first generation of video games. Now, there's only a handful of ones that are notable to this day, Um, you know, but... There, uh, there were tons. Um, literally, there were um, just a lot of one-off games. Like, you know, APF Electronics made something called the TV Fun 401, which was a Pong console, and then a TV Fun 401A, which was also a Pong console, and the TV Fun 406, which was also a Pong console. You know, over the United Kingdom, you had a company called Ajax that was making um, the TV game T800, which was an Ajax Pong console, and the color video game BM1000, which was another Ajax Pong console with probably a few added features on it, you know? Um, Atari. Atari was making stuff too. You know, they made the Pong console. Before the Ataris as we know it, they literally made a model that was just called Pong. That's all it did. It had two dials on it, and it played Pong on your TV. And then they made Super Pong, and then they made Super Pong 10. And then they also made fun stuff like the Hockey Pong, which, I mean, I don't know. It's Pong, but imagine it is hockey. They also had Super Pong and Ultra Pong. Um, There were just, you know... A lot of a lot of companies, a lot a lot of companies. You know, Bandai made a pong console called the TV Jack, and um, Coleco made a home. Actually, that was one of the big ones. So Coleco made a Telstar console. That was one of the the, the bigger ones. Um, in fact, the big video game consoles of the very first um, of the first generation were the Coleco Telstars, the Atari Home Pong the Magnavox Odyssey series, and then Nintendo made something called the Color TV Game Series. Now, I would like to do an episode on the Color TV Game Series uh, at one point. The Magnavox Odyssey only sold about 350,000 units altogether in itself. The various consoles in the Color TV Game Series sold 3 million. Um, So... Nintendo's first generation console uh, beat the crap out of the Magnavox Odyssey. And the Odyssey really just has a distinction of being, it really just has a distinction of being the very first, very first console. Um, Now, all of the others used integrated circuits. They were inbuilt chips. The only one that actually was a printed circuit board was the Magnavox Odyssey. Fun little fact. So, yeah. First generation console literally had hundreds um, and it's really funny if you ever go and you look at the generation of consoles because we went from hundreds in the very first um, in the first generation of consoles to only about 15, 15 consoles in the second generation of consoles. And then by the third, we had settled into um, the Nintendos and the Genesis. So we only had like eight and now, of course, nowadays, you know, we're down to like three, the Switch, the PlayStation and the Xbox. Um, I mean, that's a little bit of exaggeration. There are others, but you, you get what I'm saying. So uh, Nintendo's the only console manufacturer that was there in the beginning that is now from the first to now. A little fun fact. Anyway, a lot of consoles in that first generation. Um, and the Manavox Odyssey was just one of them. Um Now, there were 11 different Odyssey consoles in that weird 100-200 series um, that were produced 
in the with the inbuilt chips. And then Magnavox created a follow-up console, which was a non-dedicated console called the Odyssey 2 in 1978. I have an Odyssey 2. It's the oldest video game system I own. And it's pretty cool. It's a little piece of history. I treasure it. Um, and the truth is, is while the, like I just said, while the Odyssey started the video game industry, it, it's not a commercial success. Magnavox made way more money in court going after copyright infringement than it did on the console itself. One of the smartest things that they did was file those patents when they had nothing else to do. And so they started going after companies for infringing on their patent. And I mean, they cleaned up among its targets were Atari, Bally Midway, Sears, William Electronics, and more. You know, one of the major ones to come out of this was Atari. You know, Atari's first successful game was Pong. That's what they're famous for after computer space. Um, that was their first, and then Pong. And it came out later that Nolan Bushnell, one of the one of the founders of Atari, had went to a demonstration of the Magnavox Odyssey played table tennis, came back to Atari and told um, Alan Alcorn, told one of his engineers to, here's my idea, design it. And and the guys at Atari designed it without knowing where it came from. And this all played out in court. And Atari ended up losing. I mean, pretty obvious that they would lose, right? Um, they ended up losing. You know, in the end, Bayer's patent, it's called the 480 it's called the 480 video game patent because the last three digits are 480. The 480 patent was labeled as the pioneering patent. It's literally called the pioneering patent for video game art. And all these suits that they filed for copyright infringement were either won or settled on, like all of them. Atari, for example, they agreed to purchase a license for $1.5 million, which was insane money at the time. And as part of the agreement, they granted Magnavox a access to all of their technology that was produced between June of 76 and June of 77, the time period that they were profiting off of this intellectual theft, um, which is which is really cool. Um, later lawsuits, they they were able to wrangle in Coleco, probably with ColecoVision, Mattel, and you know Activision, and even Nintendo got sued by Magnavox at one point. Uh, and when I say they cleaned up, I'm not even kidding. All in all, it's said that Magnavox won over $100 million in settlements involving the original Odyssey patent, the 480 patent, and they continued to win these lawsuits until the patent expired in the early 1990s. Um, yeah, so it was monumental for being the first and laying the groundwork for all the others. And Magnavox cleaned up by being the first to patent. So um, it, it goes without saying, protect your intellectual property, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah, so that's the Magnavox Odyssey. You know, it it's a 1972 console. This is usually the time when, you know, Rob joins me with some reviews. Uh, I don't have Rob and I don't have reviews. Let's be honest, no one was publishing their reviews for a console in 1972. I found a few little snippets, but nothing of substance that was in interesting. People had mixed feelings. You know, some people thought it was the coolest guy ever. Some people were concerned. I mean, let's be honest, it, anytime you have something new, there's always concerns. But a lot of people were in awe. It was a new electronic toy. Uh, who knows how it was going to go? So, you know, the Magnavox is, Magnavox is, is very important to us in history and like i said it's in the smithsonian the brown box is in the smithsonian there are replicas in it in other video game museums um it 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 holds a place it's the first video game console it's going to be historically relevant you can find it in a lot of places because of it if you ever get your hands on an old one in box with all the overlays and everything that's the that's what you want because those are the hard stuff to come by so now Aside from the Magnavox, 
uh, Ralph Bayer, you know, he's he has the name of the father of video games. He does. Now other people have been given that title. Bushnell, you know, with Pong was given that title. There's a man named Jerry Lawson who invented the first console or helped design the first console that had cartridges. That's the Fairchild Channel F. We're going to be covering that not too many episodes from now. So check our calendar out if you want to see when that is. So all these other people were given the title. But realistically, Ralph Bayer here is the one who generally is, you know, we as video game historians generally look at Ralph Bayer as the, as the inventor and the father of video games. Um, all the way up until his death, I think 2014. Now, he has invented other things, though, that you may not know about him. You know, he, other than video games, he has credit for being a co-designer on three relatively popular electronic toy games. The most important invention, probably, that he has is Simon. You know that little handhold console with the lights and the sounds that you have to, you know, Simon says it lights up and you have to match the pattern that it lights up? That was a Ralph Bayer invention. Uh, he made its sequel, Super Simon. He later made another game in the same vein. It was a hard, similar pattern matching game called Maniac. Um, he has his name on patents for like books that come with sounds, you know, by the time that he, by the time of his death, which like I said, it was 2014, he had over 150 patents to his name. And other than video games and the games that we just, um, you know, just, just talked about, uh, his patents also included electronic greeting cards and tracking systems that can be found on submarines. Um, I mean, all in all, Ralph Bayer is a really fascinating guy. You know, he was inducted. Should not be surprising that he was inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame. In 2006, he received a National Medal of Technology from George W. Bush. Honestly, there's a really sad story about that. You can go on his website and view it. But his wife passed away. The love of his life passed away on Friday. And on Monday, he was at the White House getting the medal. Um getting the medal of technology from George Bush. And it's a little interview anecdote where he's like, you know, after my wife, cause he kept inventing right up until his death. And he's like, well, after my wife passed away, what else did I have to do with my life? I just kept making things. Um, if only we could all, uh, if only we could all be, uh, you know, so much. Um, if only we can all be so inspired and inventive and motivated as Ralph Bayer, we can make, we could collectively come up with a, a whole lot of cool things. So, so yeah, that's, that's Ralph Bayer. That's the Magnavox Odyssey. That's, that's the beginning of our video game industry, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's more to it. Like I said, I want to do a later episode on the first generation of consoles, specifically the Nintendo ones, because I think they're fascinating. Also shortly, we'll be doing the fair channel channel F. If you would like to see when that's going to be, we always keep a calendar of upcoming episodes on our website. That, of course, is www.memorycardlane.com. You can also find all the show notes for my research. You can go back and see all of our old episodes. Our biographies are on there. A link to our Patreon and our Discord is on there. Um, if you would like to be part of our community and um, links to our social media. I'm on various platforms as David is wrong because I am frequently wrong. I mean, we're all wrong. We're human, right? Ladies and gents, perfectly fine. So, you know, check, go to our website and check out all the things that are there. This is, of course, our 105th episode. So we are starting our third year of podcasting and we have episodes planned out up through 2023 so we're not going anywhere anytime soon there'll be lots of of other really interesting video game history topics for you to learn about um so yeah now this is about the time where we revisit the goal of each episode each week i like to tell you a story about video game history it's usually relevant to a current game in video game history this week it's relevant to a console 
that was released in September of, you know, 72. So, console. I tell you the stories because I want to teach you something new about video games. I want to teach you something new about the game. I want to teach you something new about what inspired the game. Or I want to teach you something new about what the game gave to the world. It's inspiration, the game, the legacy. Every time I teach you a new topic, I learn things too. And and I like to acknowledge that as well. And um, typically we do our big takeaways. So I'm going to do my own big takeaway. I didn't know and was really fascinated by Ralph Bayer's military history. I didn't know he was a small arms expert. That blew my mind. And how close he came to being deployed to Normandy must have been terrifying. And also, what would have happened? I mean, where would the industry have come from? And there's always the argument that if there wasn't a Ralph Bayer, there's a the next guy. Nolan Bushnell was inventing games at the time. Um, or, you know, we did eventually get the, the Jerry Lawson. And um, it, yeah, I mean, we would have gotten it, but would it look like this? Would it be like this? Would, would we have gotten it so soon? It's always the what it's, it's always so fascinating to think about the what ifs, if, if something had happened and we were real close to Ralph Bayer getting deployed to something that a lot of men really didn't come back from, unfortunately. So that was, I was really surprised to learn, to learn that. And what if his family had stayed in Germany? I mean, we all know what happened there. That's all I'm going to say about that. So it was really fascinating, but um, but that's that. That's the Magnavox Odyssey and Ralph Bayer and the you know little brief thing on the first generation of consoles. I I hope that you enjoyed today's little story. As always, on behalf of myself and my usual co-host, I want to thank you for joining us. It's really a pleasure to be able to come here week after week and teach you things. Because I also learn things, and learning new things is a joy for me. And I hope it's as much of a joy for you as it is for me. So, thank you very much. If you're listening, if you're not listening, you should be listening. And you're not going to know if you're not listening. So, I don't know why I'm talking to you. But listen and enjoy. And thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. So... All right. Well, on that note, I think it's time to take it out of here. Next week, we should be back to normal. And we're going to go back to looking at an early game in the RPG genre. This is one of the first games based on Dungeons & Dragons. It's definitely the first Dungeons & Dragons game to have color graphics. And in the entirety of video game history, it's the first true party-based game. Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, was released in September of 1981 for the Apple II. In launching Wizardry, a series started that has spawned eight games, along with some spinoffs, and we're going to look at all of it. So join us again next week as we party up to fight some evil on yet another trip down memory card lane. Hey, Dave, do the thing anyways. Do wop, do wop, do wop, do wop.